Let's grab our Bibles, open up to Esther chapter 6. We're actually going to be primarily in uh, chapter 7 as as we're moving along in the story of Esther, Uh, but we have to finish with the last verse of chapter 6, which uh, we we didn't really highlight last week, or two weeks ago, I guess it's been. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship this morning as uh, Kim reminded us, boy, what a privilege that we can come openly, publicly like this to study your word, to sing your praises, to have fellowship with one another. And God, we pray that your spirit would be free to work in this gathering right now to do uh, what you intend in each and every heart this morning. May we be open to your work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as uh, as we're moving along in the story of uh, Esther, things are definitely moving towards a climax. Uh, uh, the bad guy, just uh, you know, by way of a quick reminder here, Haman has uh, manipulated King Ahasuerus into signing a law authorizing the extermination of all the Jews. And, and at the time, uh, neither the king nor Haman had any idea that Esther was of Jewish origin, as she had kept that secret when he selected her as queen. Uh, Mordecai, one of the good guys who also happens to be a Jew and was Esther's stepfather and also uncle, uh, uh, he uh, was the pretense for Haman's murderous plot to to kill the Jews. Uh, Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman, and so Haman wanted him dead and decided he wanted all Jewish people dead. But when it came to Mordecai, he just couldn't wait for that date set for the extermination, which was still many months down the road. Uh, It was just too long for him to tolerate this man who would not bow down to him. And so on his wife's advice and and some friends, uh, he had a humongous gallows built with the intention of having Mordecai hanged on it. Now, whether it was due to a law or protocol or maybe just good manners, uh, even though Haman was the second most powerful man in the kingdom at that time, he wanted to ask the king for permission in order to hang uh, Mordecai. Uh, But when he went to the palace early that that next morning uh, to ask the king for this this favor, uh, the king spoke up first. It seems the king had had a bad case of insomnia, had been up all night, and in a futile effort to try to lull him to sleep, uh, he had demanded that his chamberlain grab the Chronicles of the King, which was a record book of what happened every single day in the kingdom, and read it to him. And uh, the chamberlain just happened to read, right, Which, which of course we know is the providence of God at work. God led that chamberlain to read that particular section about how Mordecai had foiled a plot uh, that a couple of guys were hatching to assassinate the king. And, uh, you know, of course, this uh, greatly interested the king. He enjoyed hearing about that part of the story. And and afterwards, he said, well, what do we do to reward this guy? And found out, according to the record book, Nothing, nothing had been done to, to honor this person who had saved the king's life. And, and so when Haman came in early that morning uh, uh, 
the king immediately asked him, before Haman could make his request to hang Mordecai, the king immediately asked him, well, hey, what should I do in order to honor a person that I really want to honor? And, of course, Haman couldn't think of anybody that the king would want to honor other than himself. And so he devised an incredibly magnificent grand ceremony uh, to honor this person. But then to his horror, the king told him, ah, that's a good idea. Go carry out everything you said. Don't leave out one bit of it for Mordecai. Right? And, and, and after spending all day doing that, uh, Haman quickly scurried home in complete humiliation where both his wife and his friends said to him, uh, dude, you are heading for trouble, right? I mean, that's a loose paraphrase, uh, but that's the, basically what they said. A and right after hearing that, uh, that less than encouraging remark, that's what brings us to verse 14 of chapter 6, which says, while they were still talking with him, his wife and his friends, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Now, if, if this was a melodrama or a play, right, this is where the music would go, dun-dun-dun, you because know, man, you know something bad's happening at that point. It, he's on his way there. But, but remember, uh, this is the second banquet that, that uh, Esther had invited Haman and the king to. Uh, Esther, at the urging of Mordecai, had decided to confront the king about Haman's plot and, and, and to plead for their lives, which, of course, would have meant revealing to him that, that she was uh, of Jewish origin. But in order to do that, she first had to approach the king, and it was illegal. It was illegal to approach the king without an invitation, punishable by death. But she decided she had to do it, took her chances, and, and, and trust God would work. And sure enough, he did. He, uh, the king not only allowed her to live, but asked her what her request was. You know, he knew something important was coming down. Why, why'd you come? But uh, all she requested of him was for him and Haman to come to a banquet that she had prepared for them. And, and so then at that banquet, the king, once again, knowing, I mean, there had to be something big. You don't just approach the king under punishment of death, you know, to ask somebody out for dinner. So, so he, he says again, what, what is it? What do you want? But rather than saying what she wanted, even at that point, she just said, I, I want you and Haman to come back to another banquet, a second banquet, which I'll prepare for you tomorrow. And, and, and that's the banquet that Haman is now being escorted to uh, after hearing the gloom and doom from his wife and friends. He's heading towards that banquet. But you have to be wondering, what exactly was going through Haman's mind at this moment? Now, see, he, he probably thought that he could still come out on top. Right? Because that's what bad guys tend to do. They, they, they always think they've got it under control. They think they're smarter than your average bear. They, 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 they figure that they can manipulate and connive their way out, out of any problem. So I'm betting that as he's on the way to the banquet, his mind is whirling and going 100 miles an hour trying to come up with plans of how he can still get Mordecai 
and, and not tick off the king. And, and so he's trying to, to come up with these plans, and, and uh, no doubt he was also feeling that sense of pride of being the only official in the entire kingdom who gets to go to this private party with the king and queen. So I, I'm willing to bet that on the way he was convincing himself that, you know, everything's going to work out just fine in the end. Then he and the king arrive at the party. And similar to the first party, uh, when they got done eating, they were sitting around and, and, and drinking their wine. And verse 2, chapter 7 tells us, And the king said to Esther, on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be done. And remember that, that statement of half the kingdom. He's not really going to give up half his kingdom. Uh, that was just a way of expressing, man, whatever you want it, within reason, I, I'm going to give it to you. So, so tell me what it is that you want. Uh, this is the third time the king ha has promised to grant Esther's request. And apparently she felt, okay, now's the right time for me to reveal this. And I think, I think at this point, Haman was still oblivious to, to his peril. I mean, he didn't know that Esther was Jewish. So, I mean, he, he wouldn't have been able to connect her request with his decree that he had put out earlier uh, to kill the Jews. Uh, and I'm thinking his mind, you know, was still preoccupied with how he could uh, get at Mordecai. Although, uh, just like the king, I mean, he had to be very curious about what was so important to Esther that she would risk her life getting the king's attention. So, so no doubt he was paying close attention to what she said next. A and what she said just caused the floor to drop out from underneath him. Here, here's how she said it. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. This statement, I mean, had to shock the king, right? Who on earth would dare to threaten the life of his queen? And then what, what did she mean uh, by sparing her people? And of course, that statement also had to shock Haman, only in a <coughs> much different way. It would have grabbed his attention, kind of like someone grabbing him around the neck and shouting in his face, listen up here, buddy, things are about to get hot. And... Uh, he had to be wondering, could it possibly be? I mean, right now, he's, he's maybe starting to get those dots connected together. And he didn't know for sure. But if he was wondering, Esther's next statement took every doubt out of his mind. She went on to say, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, now, the king, he might have still been a little bit confused at this point because remember when Haman came to the king to make his request to exterminate all the Jews, he never identified the Jews by name. He never, he never 
identified what group of people it was he wanted to kill. He just called them a group of disobedient people in your kingdom who, who disobey your laws. They're, they're, they're going to cause trouble to you, king, and we need to get rid of them. And the king was like, eh, okay, and, and uh, he, he, he let him do that. Um, he, uh, the king apparently didn't really care who it was because he gave Haman his signet ring, which was the official seal of the kingdom, meaning Haman could take charge of this matter and it would be seen as an official proclamation from the king, which, which could not be changed. And, and it's doubtful, you know, Haman took care of all the details, wrote the letter, the proclamation, got it sent out. It's doubtful that the king even saw the proclamation before it went out. So while the king might have still been confused about exactly what's going on at this moment, Haman would have known immediately what Esther was talking about because Esther used the exact same three words that he had used in his original proclamation against the Jews. Uh, that proclamation is recorded for us in chapter 3, verse 13. It says, letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. So when Haman heard those same three words, destroy, kill, and annihilate, coming from Esther's mouth, all of a sudden, it dawned on him who she was. She was a Jew, and she was under his death threat. And even Haman had to realize that threatening the queen's life would not sit well with the king. And in that instant, all of his pride, all of his bravado, all of his ego and his sense of self-importance, all of his self-centered ambitions sunk to the pit of his stomach and became one big sour blob. He was out on a limb as far as he could be, and it was beginning to crack, and he knew it. Now, it is important, though, to keep in mind at this point that the king really liked and trusted Haman, right? I mean, that's why he promoted him to the second most powerful position just under the king himself in, in the country. Well, that's why he would have given him his signet ring and allowed him to make royal proclamations, which would be in the king's name, without the king even vetting what those plans were. He didn't even know uh, for sure what was going on. So he, he liked him and he trusted him. Uh, so... It was very wise of Esther. Notice the, the tactfulness she used in, in pointing her finger at Haman and accusing him. I mean, first, she let the king's curiosity build, right? Her initial approach to him and the first banquet, you know, he's asking three times. She, he, he, she let that build. And then when she did reveal what was on her heart and her mind, she did so in, in a very respectful way. She spoke to the king, not as this powerful queen standing up for her rights, right? But as a, a humble supplicant, putting herself under the authority of the king. Look again at verse 3. It says, if 
Here's how she approached the king. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king. She was one smart lady. And we can learn a lesson from her strategy, right? And this lesson is very simple. Communicate volatile truths in a very gracious manner. Because we all have things that we have to communicate with others that are going to be hard truths for them to hear. Uh, this was hard for the king to hear. This, this was his best bud. This was his favorite guy, right? And if you're going to communicate a hard truth to someone, you, you need to do it in a very gracious manner. This is especially true when you're addressing a superior, right? Someone who has authority over you, uh, which Esther was. But, but really, this, this principle is, is applicable for communicating any hard truth to anyone. And the book of Proverbs puts this principle, uh, um, it teaches the same principle, but in a, in a much more poetic uh, way. It, it instructs us, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances and and that that final phrase the word spoken in right circumstances could be translated as words fitly spoken or or some of the modern translations put it the right words at the right time uh it seems like in our american culture we've become a people who think that it's okay to to demand our rights to demand our way people who believe uh, that we deserve a, a certain treatment. So we come across to others as um, with, with, with this entitlement mentality. You know, I'm entitled to be treated this way. I'm in, entitled to this job. I'm entitled to this promotion. I'm entitled to wh whatever it is. Uh, Esther didn't, I mean, you see none of that in, in the way Esther communicated to the king. She, she didn't even feel she was entitled to her life, right? She, she was putting it as a request. If, if the king sees this. She didn't come across as demanding, but rather a, a humble petitioner. A, a, and then to add it on at the end, she, she aroused the king's sense of goodwill. Look at the rest of verse 4. Now, if we had only been, you know, sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Like, how's that for slick communication, right? Basically, she's saying, you know, king, if we were just going to be sold into bondage as slaves, I, I wouldn't have even bothered you with this. You know, I, I know you're a busy guy. You've got a lot of things on, on, on your mind and a lot of trouble. And, and it just, you know, that'd be no big deal. But, you know, getting killed, that's a bigger deal. And so I, I just thought I'd bring it up to the king so he knows about it. It's basically what she's saying. And, of course, by this time, the king is completely in Esther's corner. And so now he wants details. The king, uh, then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would presume to do thus? See, now the king is ready to hear the accusation against Haman, his right-hand man. So Esther blurts out, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. 
you, you, King, you, you want to know who the culprit is? You want to know where he's at? It's him. It's the guy sitting right there beside you. Now, now Haman, he, he had to know this moment was coming as soon as this conversation had started, right? And, and according to the rest of verse 6, it says he was just absolutely terrified. I, I suspect that, you know, he was kind of pivoting between the king and the queen, uh, head bobbing back and forth, maybe blubbering, trying to come, you know, I, 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 but she couldn't come out with any coherent words. And, and uh, the king, he was so angry when he heard this and, and maybe a, a bit confused uh, still, too. I mean, right? Uh, he loved Esther, but, but this was his most trusted right-hand man, and so he's trying to process all this. And, and so in his anger and hurt, he gets up and, and, and walks out to, to, to clear his head uh, into the palace garden. And, and uh, the moment he leaves, then uh, Haman realizes that this was his chance to beg for his life from uh, Queen Esther. And now in those days in, in, in Persia, people would eat... At a, at a really low table, uh, and they would be reclining on their left side so that their right hand was, was free to grab the food off the table uh, on a couch uh, that looked pretty much like this, only, you know, with fancy Persian designs and, you know, colors and stuff like that, and, and probably even shorter legs, just, just barely off the, the ground. And so Esther would have been laying on this couch, and, and, and it says that, that Haman came over to her, and, and began begging for his life, and perhaps he, he would have gone down on his knees so, so he would have been more eye-level to her, and maybe she uh, turned her head away from him. And, and so now in desperation, because, you know, the guy's pleading for his life, he, he grabs her, gets on her to, to get her attention, and, and, and right then is when the king walks back in. And, and as the king walks in and sees Haman all over Esther, he yells, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? And as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. See, in that culture, it was deemed inappropriate. A convicted criminal did not have the right to see or look at the king's face. So they would cover the head of anyone who was going to be executed. And apparently, uh, not recorded for us in, in the text, the king had commanded for Haman to be killed. And, and since the king never went anywhere, right, without uh, some of his chamberlains and his guards, uh, they were there ready to carry out the order. So as soon as the word went out of his mouth, they covered his face. And, and one of the chamberlains who was there, uh, perhaps it was the same guy who had gone and fetched Haman in the first place to bring him back to the banquet, he very helpfully uh, informed the king that Haman had built a really humongous gallows in, in his yard that he wanted to hang Mordecai on. And the king found that very convenient, and he declared, hang him on it. And thus, Haman died in the very same manner in which he planned to kill Mordecai. And I think this, this story is a perfect illustration uh, of the truth of Proverbs 26, 27. says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. And uh, the idea of that verse, of course, is, is setting traps in order to get other people. 
you know, you dig a pit and you cover it with branches so they can't see it. And the, the unsuspecting victim walks in, falls into the pit. Or, or, or like, you know, the old Western movies where you get this great big rock on the top of the hill. And when they're coming through the valley, roll the rock down on them. Uh, that's, that's what they're, they're looking at here. This verse is saying that if you plan ruin and destruction for others, eventually it's going to come back on yourself. And you know, our, our problem is when we, when we feel like we've been treated badly, like, like Haman. Haman felt like he had been treated badly because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. When, when we feel like we've been treated badly, we have a tendency to want to get back at the other person. And, and so, I mean, the, the lesson for us, again, is simple, right? We've got to be people who let God take care of getting other people right uh, as followers of jesus we need to be out of the getting other people business completely it's a strong natural tendency but it does nothing but bring ruin back on ourselves now i i, I know chances are you're not going to go to somebody's house here in Hot Springs and dig a big pit in their front yard and hope to capture them uh, that way. You're not going to get a big boulder at the top of the viaduct and roll it down to smash their car when they're coming up, this type of thing. But you know what? We do have a lot of ways of getting back at other people, don't we? We talk about them behind their back, sharing with other people what, you know, how rotten they had treated us. Or maybe we take pot shots at their character. Or, or if this person happens to be another believer, we, we might even call into question the genuineness of their salvation. How could a real Christian do that or treat me this way? As if, you know, we ourselves have never done anything uh, that would be outside the bounds of what a real Christian would, should or shouldn't do. Maybe... We withhold forgiveness from someone. Or, or, or we suppress real fellowship with them because, you know, they don't deserve uh, this relationship with me. We turn our back on them. We ignore them. We avoid seeing them. All these ways are, are, are all these things are ways of digging pits. And we need to avoid it. Or it will come back to, to bite us in the butt, so to speak. God, God has promised to take care of those who wrong us. And, and we need to step back and let him work. And, and when I say step back, I don't mean step back and rub your hands like this and say, okay, God, go get him, you know, uh, this type of thing. That's, that, that's not what we're talking about. We need to step back from the brink of us of us being the one to get back at him. And instead, continue to live as God called us to live, to love, to forgive, to reach out, to do the things that we've been called on to do. One other truth that uh, stood out to me from this particular part of Esther's story, and we'll end with that today. Haman was begging for his life, right? Clinging to Queen Esther as he was doing it. And, and the king walked in and immediately thought 
that Haman was attacking Esther. I mean, after all, Haman had plotted the death of all the Jews, and and Esther was a Jew, and and, uh, she had just revealed, right? And so it made sense that maybe he wanted to kill her. And and the king walked in, saw him all over, and just acted on that belief and that assumption. But the king had completely misinterpreted Haman's actions. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not defending Haman. Haman was guilty of of everything else and all this uh, nefarious stuff. He deserved his punishment. But it makes me wonder, how many times have I thought I knew what was going on? but I was wrong. I mean, have you ever judged another person and then later found out you were mistaken? It's not a very good feeling, is it? And the lesson for us, make sure you you gather all the facts before coming to a conclusion about someone or some situation. I mean, think about it. The king could say, I saw it with my own eyes. I know exactly what happened. But what he saw and what he concluded was completely wrong. So before you judge another person, it's very wise to make sure you have all the facts. Maybe you think you know what's going on or or, or what's even more dangerous Maybe you believe you know what was in the other person's heart or mind. Have you ever found yourself saying, I know exactly why they were doing that? Really? You can see their heart and mind? If you make conclusions based on limited information, we'll very often be wrong. And our problem is we want to fool ourselves into believing that we really do have all the facts but rarely is that true without a lot of work and effort so before jumping to some conclusion about someone or something have you looked at things from every angle have you tried to understand the other person's perspective you know a lot of times we only listen to people who are already on our side and are already saying the things we want to hear, that doesn't help us get understanding of the situation. We have to hear from the other points of view and try to understand that. And we would gain much by diligently trying to understand that person. So let's not be people who rushed to judgment as the king did when he saw Haman on Esther. Just because you see something, just because you hear something, just because you see a few facts, doesn't mean you have the whole story. Let's pray. Father God, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account of Esther and and, and, Esther. what we can learn from that for us today. God, we pray again that your spirit would would be free to, to challenge our own hearts and minds that we might live for you 
in a way that draws people to Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.